All right, today we're continuing on our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series, and you'll be happy to know that we are moving on to element four. Uh, frankly, element three, the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses, I certainly was tempted to do a, at least a couple more messages on them. Of course, you could do a whole series on the Ten Commandments and so forth. There's the trim box with food left over from yesterday. Um, but uh, we'll have to develop more of that another time because I do want to get through this series as soon as possible and get back to the Kingdom of God series as soon as possible. So this is the, um, according to my records, this is the uh, 15th message in the series, and then the 1030 message will be the 16th message in the series. <clears throat> so um, we are moving on. To element four, historical narrative of Israel. One point I just want to make from the beginning is that part of the reason it yields a lot of fruit to just keep studying the scriptures, studying the scriptures, and studying the scriptures is because our our sin nature, our culture, the the uh, Christian culture, which by any biblical standards is falling apart. Uh, and, and lots of people are writing books and, and articles about the crisis in so-called evangelical or so-called Bible-believing Christianity and so forth. All of those things have predisposed us to miss more of the message of Scripture than you could possibly imagine. And so one of the ways to counteract that is just keep reading a lot of Scripture every day, week after week, day after day, year after year, and God will begin to help you step back and put it together in bigger pictures and better ways. And honestly, this element four is that kind of an experience for me. This really began to develop in my thinking, oh, I don't know, about 15 years ago. And uh, kind of continued to develop until I actually read uh, Scott McKnight's book, which uh, develops his theme a little bit. And it kind of provided a couple of the last missing pieces in my brain. Uh, but but what we're really going to talk about here is that in the, today's gospel, nobody ever talks about the history of Israel. Uh, all the gospel presentations are generally reduced to a kind of formula, formulas like five principles, four principles. Uh, some of the principles are somewhat good principles. Uh, for instance, the whole idea that there's a gap between God and who he is and, and, and sinful man and us and who we are, and that gap must be bridged by Jesus Christ. That's all good, except if you, as we've said, if you have too small a picture of God or you have too little of a picture of your own sin, which in some cases in our day and age, I think because... The more narcissistic a culture is, the more sinful a culture is, uh, the more, uh, the deeper you've gone into sin, the harder it is to really, you know, begin to have your, your broken, your heart broken up from a heart of stone and replaced by a heart of flesh. It's one of the things you look for in pastoring. Usually, uh, those who have the most accusations against others and the least conviction in themselves, uh, that's who you worry about. Uh, you know, the Bible says, how blessed is he who trembles at God's word. 
and it, it's just a it's just a truth that um, I remember in a time when I had really gone astray and God broke me down and so forth. It really took, um, you know, I remember going to a Christian counselor. I remember humbling myself and seeking God. But it took more than a year, probably closer to two years, just to get through the initial breaking phase that I needed to get, let alone begin to get the right perspectives from from that. And because, uh, you know, our sin problem is deeper than you think and deeper than we think. And the God has to help us. Part of our salvation is God showing us how insurmountable the three enemies of the our sin nature, the world system, and Satan and his demons are. Those are insurmountable enemies, and they're much bigger than you think. And they're, they have you much deeper than you think. And therefore, you need a total rescue operation from, from the Savior, uh, from the Lord Jesus, and from his tools of grace, the Word, the Spirit, and the church. And so, um, honestly, this area of the historical narrative of Israel is an area that has developed in my thoughts over the last 15 years. And um, I used to actually do this series years ago. As it went, actually, when I first conceived of this series in the 80s, it was five elements. Uh, I redid it in the 90s as seven elements. <laughs> and, uh, and then, uh, I don't know how many years ago, changed it to eight elements. But um, this was the one that may, was the eighth. This is the one we added. So what I want to do today is... Uh, I want to start by Roman numeral two is actually a point that I intended to make last week at the end of of the Ten Commandments, uh, which I think we spent, uh, well, I think eight messages, six messages on. And uh, I really kind of meant to summarize this. Our first things, you know, who God is, the nature of man, and the Ten Commandments are designed, almost all gospel presentations have some sort of gap that's unbridgeable between God and man. The trick of it is God deepening our understanding and belief of that. Uh, on paper, it's drawn up right. Uh, how much it works into our real spirit and conviction and so forth is another issue. But therefore, what you want to do as you lead people to Christ, if you can avoid the reaping mentality, which is a idea I learned from a uh, a guy who writes books for the Navigators called Jim Peterson back in uh, the 70s. Uh, in a book he no longer publishes, I actually contacted him by email, and he's combined it into two books now and so forth. But I have some of the old copies. But he's kind of arguing that most gospel presentations today are designed to get someone to make a decision today, right now. Don't leave without closing the sale. And there's probably, even in the world of business and sales, there probably are some kinds of sales that you don't want to leave till you close the sales. Uh, I failed at those kind of sales jobs. Uh, I worked last night. I spent some time with my old boss, Greg Jackson, and I worked for him in the eighties and totally failed in a, in a kind of sales. He was trying to launch a new division of the company. And it was kind of a, you sell them the first time you talk to them or you don't. And I've never been good at that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but then I worked for him in a kind of like you sell them over one, two, or three years. And, and the issue is, can you back up what you're selling uh, with good service and, and, and so forth? And then you keep them for a long, long time. And uh, that was more, 
You know, I did very well with that atmosphere. And really, if we could understand that Jesus is saying in Matthew, uh, there's a type of person who immediately receives the word with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves. So when their persecution or affliction arises, not if it does, when the realities of life start to hit them, they immediately fall away. If you can lead someone to Christ in one time, I suggest either you don't understand what you're talking about or they didn't understand what you were talking about. I don't think there's any alternatives to that. And I don't believe uh, that you should be even looking to lead someone into Christ. I, I, I think especially the, the deeper they are in sin, the more selfish they are, etc., the more you've got to let the word of God uh, be like the prophets uh, say, is not the word of God like a hammer? Or is, well, is it not like a fire, which speaks of burning up in holiness, and like a hammer that breaks the rock? The Bible is always mixing metaphors, which uh, your English composition teacher will tell you not to do, but the Bible does it everywhere all the time. Uh, so just tell your teacher that. and they'll go. If they're not a believer, that won't get you very far. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the, the Bible's the word of God is a hammer and it breaks the rock and the rock is our hearts. And uh, we are in very much unreality about who we are. And these first three things that we talked about, who God is, the psychology and nature of man created for a purpose, created with value, but created fallen and twisted. Uh, and the 10 commandments, which we need desperately to begin to see just the tip of the iceberg of our sin, those things are designed to help us begin to see that the gap's not just a little thing that you can draw up in a booklet. And I, frankly, when I'm sharing the gospel, sometimes I'll just draw it out on notebook paper or whatever and so forth. But the key is really believing how big that gap is and believing there's only one way across that gap is for Jesus to come and rescue you. And really, the sinner's prayer should be something like, help! <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I'll do anything. Let me sign the contract. I know you're, you know, filling in as we go. I just, I just need to sign up. Okay, so um, hopefully that's what we saw. And what I, so Roman numeral two here is kind of wrap up from last week. I don't know how far I'm going to get in A and B today, but... Isaiah 59, 2 is speaking about that gap. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But our iniquities have made a separation between us and our God, and our sins have hidden his face from us, from him, uh, so that he does not hear. Uh, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. And if you go through the next several verses in Isaiah, He's basically documenting to them case laws of how they've broken the Ten Commandments. That start first, starting with the first one, your hands are defiled with blood. You're a, you're a murderous land. We kill every third baby that's conceived in this country. When there are thousands of good couples trying to adopt. We are a murderous people. And uh, if you don't, and by the way, please try to come and understand Nehemiah's prayer and Moses. Try to understand the concept of intercession. The, the concept of intercession starts with we have sinned. 
It's kind of incredible that the best intercessors in the Bible, including Nehemiah, Daniel, uh, Joseph, uh, Moses, are guys that little to no sins of theirs are recorded in the Bible. Moses has one big one, a couple actually. Uh, but as, as, as a whole, he's, here's this great man of God, and he's saying, we have sinned. There's nothing negative recorded about Nehemiah at all, yet he's saying, we have sinned. So, you know, we are a murderous people. And so, so when we talk about magnifying the gap, the, to magnify just means to see it how it is. You don't actually change uh, the actual size of something when, with a magnifying glass, glasses, telescope, any kind of instrument like that. Now, as I look out doing a quick count, I don't know who's wearing contacts because I'm not that perceptive. Uh, three, four, five, uh, six, seven, eight. There's about eight of us wearing, nine, I missed Sydney there. Not, about nine of us wearing uh, spectacles. And the reason we're wearing spectacles isn't because Davion's not the right size. It's because we don't see very well. <laughs> and we don't change like Davion doesn't grow. Oh, he just grew three feet and came in more clearly. That, so when we talk about magnifying the Lord or magnifying the gap between God and us, all we're trying to do is see it correctly. And the whole point of sin is to get you not to see it correctly. And part of our sin nature is we can see it in others, but we can't see it in ourselves. That's why you need community. That's why you need the Holy Spirit. And that's why you need the scriptures. Now, second thing uh, we want to talk about on that is that mercy triumphs over judgment. However, um, the idea of a wrath of God has become very unpopular in the church today. Hardly ever is it talked about. And there are whole sections of the major, when you look at the major historical sections of Christianity, Eastern Christianity, Western, that became the Latin or Roman Catholic tradition, the, the Protestant Reformation and the evangelical tradition. There are whole sections of, that actually have a doctrine. There is no such thing as God's wrath. Now, that was not the case in any of those movements when they started. But I would run out of time if I just read all the scriptures from only the New Testament on the wrath of God. So you really have to kind of do some cutting out of the scriptures with your scissors to get rid of the concept. And here's, uh, so here's, here's some things I want us to understand about both the law. This is a transitional segue point. This Roman, there's number two B is both the law and the history of Israel help us put in perspective that when God comes to visit, he comes with wrath and he comes with grace and mercy. And his word is like a sword and you got to dive to one side of the blade or the other. But you can't pray for an outpouring of God's spirit without praying for some people to get in more trouble. The same God, you know, everyone has this God of the Old Testament is different. God of the New Testament is, is different. And so that's so, so much heresy. It's crazy. But the God of the New Testament 
killed Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 because they were in a time of great visitation and great sense of presence. Acts 2, 3, and 4 uh, talk how there was such an amazing presence of God that everyone feared God, and even the unbelievers were scared to hang around the believers. And The church was in a whole different place in terms of the attitude of the worldly people toward the church than we're in today. There was a great, ongoing, abiding outpouring of God's presence. And in the midst of that, Ananias and Sapphira decided they'd look more spiritual than they are. They were just like we do if we yell at our wife on the way to church or our wife yells at us or whatever, or things where, you know, we uh, drank too much last night or whatever. And when then we get hit the parking lot and, and uh, you know, sister so-and-so says, how you doing? And you just say, great, great. I'm really feeling the presence of God in my life. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira sold their land and, and said they gave 100%. Now, there was no, you know, they were actually misunderstanding Christian community. The, a lot of people in the community were giving all their land, but there was no requirement of that quite clearly, nor could there be biblically. And so they thought, well, we'll sell our land, but we'll say that we gave the whole price, but we'll hold back half. <laughs> and God, if you look at the text clearly, God wasn't upset about their holding back half. Peter makes it clear, you had the right to do that. You just didn't have the right to lie about it. <laughs> And uh, that puts, should put the fear of God in you because I know all of us, I have certainly have struggled with the uh, fear of man to the level where sometimes I sort of embellish my whatever godly thing I've done or whatever. And uh, unfortunately, that's putrid. And thank, if we were having enough of a move of God, I might get killed for it. <laughs> thank God that uh, the outpouring of the Spirit's limited in our day. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, you really you really can't have it both ways. God comes in judgment, and he comes in mercy because that's who he is, and you can't divide him. However, the whole plan of, of the eternal covenant of God was what some theologians call the redemptive covenant, was to save man in his, and to work out uh, a situation where his mercy could triumph over judgment. That's a main message of the whole Bible. So Paul talks about it this way in 2 Corinthians. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That has to do with, by the way, uh, with the Roman, the Roman generals, whenever they would conquer a place, would lead the people that they conquered in chains through the streets of Rome in a triumphal procession and so forth. You see that same idea if you watch the Ten Commandments movie when you'll, not Yul Brynner, he's uh, the bad guy, uh, Charlton Heston, who's playing Moses, is leading uh, a conquered nation to the south of Egypt in chains before the Pharaoh. He's having a triumphal procession. And that's what Jesus is uh, doing. And thanks be to God that, that Christ is always leading us in a triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are a fragrance or aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Both. We're an aroma of Christ to both those who are being saved and those who are perishing. That's why they didn't like Jesus very much, because he testified to them that their deeds were evil. 
If you're walking in God, you're going to have some people don't like you, and they don't like your message. Uh, to one, we're a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We're, no one. Our sufficiency is only and, and, and could only be in Christ. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, TV evangelists, <laughs> uh, but are, as of men of sincerity. See, they had, this, they had some of the same problems back then. There were people who were self-promoters. Uh, so, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 24, Paul's talking about this same thing when he says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who are perishing still need to hear the word of the cross. You need to invite them. Uh, but those who are being saved, to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise guys and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Of course, whenever you see the bold caps from the New American Standard, it means it's a quote from the Old Testament. Whether, uh, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? You know, by the way, when he uses scribe and debater of this age, he's purposely identifying the, the teachers of Israel and and the philosophical leaders of, of, of the Greco-Roman humanism. And uh, he said, where's the debater? That's, uh, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You know you're starting to understand the things of God when you see, when you kind of break down in grief over how foolish uh, the lost people's ideas are. That doesn't mean we, we don't like them. That doesn't mean we're not humble enough to communicate with them. It does mean we're broken heart, that in much wisdom comes much grief. The more you see, the more it'll break your heart. Um, for indeed, uh, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, which really means like a bear trap. It means a trap so deep that they had to cut their leg off to get out of it. And to Gentiles, foolishness, like this is absurd. Uh, you should, if you're a good Christian, you should have plenty of people who think you're just nuts. Uh, there should be your neighbors. Um, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. All right, so I kind of wanted to wrap up just uh, and really lead into all four of these first points we, the more we understand them, the more we'll begin to see the incredible gap, the insurmountable gap between God and man, okay? Now, so let's get into, uh, I'm going to spend three messages at least on this history of Israel, and I'm going to start with the fact that this, today I have never heard, I've been a Christian 41 years, I love podcasts, I used to love cassette tapes. <laughs> uh, I had literally listened to thousands of cassette tape teachings when that was the technology in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, I love audio teachings of all sorts of men of God that are tremendous guys. But I've never heard a gospel sermon that covers the history of Israel. We've extracted that from the presentation. Now, you have to contrast that 
with there aren't any in the New Testament that that's not the main foundational framework that the gospel is shared out of. Now, unfortunately, the only book I know of that that addresses that, because I have this theory that, you know, we're trying to restore it all, which is a big goal, but... Um, I have a theory that we'll, that we'll always be able to find someone who's saying this piece of it and that piece of it in our attempts to restore it all. And uh, the only thing I've ever found is Scott McKnight's book called The King Jesus Gospel that kind of makes this point. Um, there's a couple of things that I wouldn't like about it. The one, he, ta- he talks about the story of Israel without clarifying that it's a historically accurate narrative. And he's coming from an evangelical framework, so he's assuming it's an historically accurate narrative. He's uh, so forth, but he needs to understand that when a when a when mainstream Protestant, when a liberal Protestant or a liberal Catholic hears that, they're saying, "Yeah, we've been saying all along it's a story, and it's a myth, and it's fiction." And he never clarifies that in the book, which I find upsetting. However. Uh, the thing that's probably a little bigger, because you can adjust that in your own brain easily and just read it. Uh, <laughs> um, you don't have to be as neurotic as me. When I read the book, I kept crossing out the word story and writing historical narrative. <laughs> uh, because I'm totally neurotic. But uh, God help me. Um, but the other thing is he never, he although he documents quite clearly, uh, in fact, a lot of the things I'm going to teach today, I took from that book. And I have it on Kindle, and I just want to Kindle, back to the message, Kindle, back to the message, Bible Gateway, cut and paste the scriptures, and so forth. He documents very clearly that every gospel presentation in Acts, now he says there's only seven, he's really defining the gospel more narrowly as as presentations to Gentiles and to unbelievers, but there's really about, I don't know, 20 gospel presentations in Acts. And uh, every one of them, is is not only filled with Old Testament quotes, but the, but they tell the historical narrative of what God did to make covenant in Israel to point to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. He is the new Israel. And therefore, those who are in union with him, known, named as the church, are the new Israel of God. And frankly, if you had that understanding today, you could not be a dispensationalist or any of the great paradigms of thinking that that rule the evangelical subculture today. Um, Because uh, quite clearly, God has always been a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. People were always saved by grace. God always entered into covenant with man by grace. Uh, Grace always worked through faith, that God was the author of faith. And there were always conditions and laws of the covenant, and there were sanctions for disobedience and blessings for obedience. And there was always definition to the covenant made in covenant ceremonies with vows and covenant uh, ceremonies of enactment, such as water baptism, and covenant ceremonies of reinforcement, such as communion. Those were from the Old Testament or really more accurately, the Hebrew scriptures. So um, the truth of the matter is there is a total continuity between the covenants. 
And this uh, a major idea of dispensationalism is that there's a separate destiny for the physical geographical nation of Israel that will only be brought about after a second coming cataclysmic event. And that all the things said about Israel and Judah in all the Bible don't apply to the church, which is just crazy. And uh, because all the promises of God, 1 Corinthians 1.20, or 2 Corinthians 1.20, are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And therefore, you could not be in union with Christ Jesus without all the promises of all the scriptures from Moses to Malachi applying to you and to us as a people. Now, let's get into a few of these. I'm going to first read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, and that's a pr- kind of a strange place to start a uh, survey of the gospel in Acts. But it, there's a method to my madness, I assure you. For I delivered to you as of first importance, not somewhere down the stream, what I also thought up myself, because I'm so brilliant, oh, I'm sorry, Be what I also received, who did he receive it from? Christ and the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, there's a couple of things you need to understand why this is a good place to start with the book of Acts, a survey of of the gospel in Acts, is because Paul is describing, Luke tells us about Paul's visit to Acts in Acts chapter 18, his visit to Acts, his visit to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, but he doesn't give any of the content of what Paul teaches. Paul is now telling you, when I, in Acts 18, this is what I preach to them. Now, a couple things you need to know about this. Uh, A wonderful evangelical Bible teacher named Lee Strobel, if you've never read his case for Christ, you ought to. It's a good one. Um, He points out that these passages, which you should recognize some phrases that are in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed that we we talk about every Sunday, um, he he talks about how... Um, those that there's documentary evidence, there's a smoking gun, it's not debatable at all, that these scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, to up through verse 8 or 9 or 10, somewhere in that range, were quoted as part of the Lord's Day gathering of the churches, and we know that within eight years of the resurrection, that was being done by all the churches. In other words, they always recited creeds, and the first creed that was ever recited was 1 Corinthians 15. Then that's how Paul received it. He received it after his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, uh, and he uh, and because he began to preach the gospel in the synagogue and, and among the Christians, and he was taught this creed. Now, when he says two, two important points here besides that one is, uh, so we got three points so far that this is what he preached in Corinth, that he received it from the creeds that were being spoken in the early church, 
Uh, thirdly, when he's talking about according to the scriptures, no, the New Testament scriptures weren't written yet. First Corinthians is one of the first books. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures that we now call the Old Testament. And if you don't know the history of it, there was a, there was a strict canon of 39 books that was, the, that was agreed to by uh, the, the rabbis and so forth about 100 B.C., and Jesus and the apostles always upheld that as the canon of the Hebrew scriptures. That's why it came over into the church, exactly as those 39 books, and no, no Christian traditions added any books to the 39 books until well after the Reformation and what was known as the Counter-Reformation. So um, I'm all for reading Maccabees or whatever as history, but not as in, is, uh, inerrant, infallible scripture. Because the rabbis of the first century didn't believe it was, Christ didn't believe it was, the apostles didn't believe it was, and the church never thought it was uh, in ancient times. So that's a, a next point. Another point is when, you know, so he, that this, this idea that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, that he was raised according to the scriptures, that all of this is, is clearly uh, viewable in the Hebrew scriptures or Old Testament was so important to the early church that they kept that as phrase from 1 Corinthians 15 and both the apostles in the Nicene Creed. That's why when we recite the creed every week and we say Christ died or whatever, according to the scriptures, it's not talking about the New Testament scriptures. It's talking about the scriptures that clearly foretold Christ's death, as Peter talks about three or four times in his two epistles and so forth. So that's really important to see. Um, you know, the, 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 the point of the New Testament way of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom is to say, Jesus is Israel. He's the fulfillment of everything about Israel. He, Israel is called God's beloved son. Jesus is God's beloved son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The Israelites had to go to Egypt. Christ, God worked in Herod, the wicked king, because the Bible declares very clearly that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wishes. And he worked through that wicked fox, Herod, as Jesus later calls him, to cause uh, Joseph and Mary to need an angel to appear to Joseph in a dream and said, get out of here because they're seeking to kill this boy. Take him to Egypt. Because he could not be our Lord and our Christ if he had not gone to Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my son. If you didn't live in Egypt, you couldn't be the son or daughter of God. Now, in Acts 1, 4, and 5, it says, While staying with them, Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but for wait, to wait for the promise of the Father. And that phrase, the promise of the Father specifically 
deals with a different kind of more complete outpouring of God's spirit that would be more widely distributed among all believers called the baptism in the spirit. And it, it, uh, the next verse makes it clear. Whenever you see four, it's always defining what it says. So he says, wait for the promise of the father, which you heard of from me. When, when did they hear of that from Jesus? In John 7, but mostly in the Passover supper sermon that John records in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and his high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus teaches all about that the Holy Spirit will be the fulfillment of that phrase, the promise of the Father, in those chapters, because the, the Old Testament promises um, that God will, that all will know me from least to great, the greatest, and that I will write my law upon all their hearts. That's why Pentecost came on Pentecost, because Pentecost was the Feast of Weeks that celebrates uh, Moses bringing the Ten Commandments down from the mountain to the people. And in Pentecost is when God begins to write his law upon your heart and your mind in powerful ways. It takes, takes your desire for sanctification to a whole different level. That notwithstanding that, unfortunately, much of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement has actually been known for financial, sexual, and every other kind of immorality. People are fallen. Uh, but nevertheless, that's really what God bursts in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You couldn't want to be holy apart from the Holy Spirit. And you receive the Holy Spirit when you're born again, but there are clearly other outpourings of the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. Because in Acts 4... When it says they, after they prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to preach the word of God with boldness, the people in that room were all the same people that were in Acts 2 when they were filled, when they received Pentecost. And in Acts 4, they got filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, which is it? Both. Because we leak. I leak. I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm most of your pastor, so I think I, think I know you leak too. All right, so uh, the promise of the Father, by the way, is spoken of in many scriptures, but there's two that really stand out as the most clear, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. If you don't know those scriptures, you should. They're quoted a lot of times in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews. You should memorize those scriptures. And in Joel 2, 28 through 32. And the Joel 2 one is, is so important that when... The Pentecost happens, and all these people come up and say, you're drunk. Peter starts with, we're not drunk. It's too early in the morning for that. And then he goes right into, this is what the prophet Joel said. And he quotes the promise of the Father from Joel 2, 28 through 32. And he says, that's what this is. So with that backdrop, the, you know, the whole point of Jesus sending them out is he says, wait until these Old Testament scriptures have been fulfilled in your, in your life, in your experience, and in the whole community, and then go proclaim the message of the Hebrew scriptures about a new covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, that I'll write my law upon their hearts and their minds, and I'll be merciful, that is, I'll forgive their sins, forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name throughout all the world, and they will all know me from the least to the greatest. 
etc. All of that, Jeremiah 31 through 31 through 34, Jesus is saying, as soon as I give the whole community this infusion with the power of the Holy Spirit, that's why we've prayed all summer for the ministries that coming up. And I, I'm glad to say that we've had a little bit of stirring and lots of people, lots of people are breaking free and doing better and going forward in the things of God. And that's very, it's been very encouraging. And I thank all the people who pray Monday nights, Tuesday nights and Thursday nights and Friday nights uh, that, that have brought that about. And I'm praying that all of us will get in on it because then the, the, we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You have to walk in the holiness that the Holy Spirit provides and in the power the Spirit provides if you're going to be his witness. He wants to set you free. All right, so let's uh, turn over. I don't have a lot more time, but I'll be picking this back up at... at uh, so that's some background to Acts, and let's get into Acts. In Acts 2.14, we just talked about this verse. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord in Christ, that Jesus whom you crucified. That's the end of the sermon. Now, you know, sometimes in literature, they'll show you the end of the movie, and then they'll, like the guy will have a dream and dream about how he got there, or it'll, or it'll say four days ago, and it'll take you forward to the story. In Acts 2.36, he ends his sermon by saying to this whole group of Hellenized Jews who were serious enough about God to, be, to come from all over the Roman Empire. Just so you, uh, we'll, I think maybe we'll wait till next, yeah, we'll wait till the next message to pick up what a Hellenized Jew is. And I'll just suffice it to say uh, in wrapping this one up that he quotes um, several scriptures that are listed there at the top of your outline We've already touched on Joel 2.28, the promise of the Father, and we'll pick those up at the next meeting. And uh, John's going to hate that I actually got done on time <laughs> when he wasn't here. Uh, we'll pick that up uh, here in about 10 minutes. And uh, Leah and Deanna, if we can, just start as close to 10.30 as we can. But you know. uh, Thank you.